my least favorite part of any podcast is? It's the, like, 15 minutes in the opening the host spends plugging whatever it is they feel the need to plug. So you know what? Let's just skip that. I have a newsletter that I put a lot of work into. I'd appreciate it if you'd subscribe. In fact, I'd appreciate it so much that I'll save you the time of me trying to convince you to subscribe. You can find it on my website, codycommerce.com newsletter. Oh, and another thing. Subscribe to Cognitive Revolution or don't. Either way is fine, but if you like the show, please send me a message through email or a DM on Twitter. That means way more, and I'd really love to hear from you. So now, let's get to the show. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is Cognitive Revolution. This week's guest is someone very special. Michelle Lamont has had a huge impact on my thinking as a psychologist. She is the Robert I. Goldman Professor of European Studies and a professor of sociology and African-American studies at Harvard University. The, uh, the first time I encountered her work was in a book she wrote, published in 2000, called The Dignity of Working Men. It's a work of comparative sociology in which she interviews working class men in both New York and France, both black and white individuals, and essentially allows them to tell their own story of the way they see the world while providing some sociological interpretation along the way. And uh, up till that point in my education in psychology, it had been mostly sort of on the, on the cognitive straight and narrow, you might say. And as I, as I sort of allude to in our conversation, I read the book at a time when I had just begun to think about the role that culture and society play in the way we think. Uh, so the book resonated with me because it gave me new insight into the world my father came from. He is originally from Butte, Montana, the mining epicenter of the U.S. in a previous era. And so even though I'm somewhat removed from it in my own life, the, the world that he grew up in gives me a connection to that working class worldview. And when I read Professor Lamont's book, Every sentence was like, oh, yes, wow, wait, that's totally the thing. Uh, so it's, it's a brilliant work, and it has only become more relevant over time. Uh, I highly recommend it to anyone that's interested in understanding more about uh, this huge section of the population that isn't as well represented in typical academic discourse. At any rate, it was a huge honor to talk to her. She uh, has a number of other books that you can check out. We talk about how all her work is sort of connected, and uh, she also has a new book coming out soon, which you can keep an eye out for. But yeah, that's enough of me. Here is Michelle Lamont. So yeah, so you started off uh, as a native French speaker, and you were educated in Canada and Paris. And then what made you decide to come and do uh, the academic job market in the U.S.? Well, when I finished my uh, graduate work in France, um, I was originally, I think, planning to come back to Canada, but it's a time when there was a crisis in the labor market, uh, 82, uh, 1982. And uh, I kind of anticipated that and got a postdoc to go to uh, Stanford. And... Um, I, uh, it was a two-year postdoc, so I simply decided to stay. While I was there, I fell in love, and I, uh, you know, I was also very young. I was 25, and I 
I had job offers afterward at Carleton University in Ottawa. And this is where my parents were. And after having lived in France for four years, I felt like, oh, this is a life of adventure. I'm not ready to uh, simply go back to where my parents live. So it was partly a choice to continue to have an adventurous life, you know. As for France, they were not really engaging. I was sorry, hiring many people who were... Uh, who were not French, uh, the, the climate there was pretty colonial and uh, there were very few university jobs. Uh, Amer French universities were extremely underfunded and I went from there to Stanford, which was extremely luxurious uh, by comparisons. And, I, and people did research at Stanford that had absolutely nothing to do with the conditions that were prevailing in France. So that's partly, I felt like, wow, this is really another world in terms of uh, doing social science research. So I decided to give it a try. So if you were, uh, you know, sort of making life decisions based off of the idea of leading an adventurous and, and joyful life and, and all that sort of stuff, was there, um, was there other, did you feel like you were a fully committed student at the time of your undergrad and PhD, or were you spending a lot of time doing things sort of outside uh, the, the academic purview? I started uh, graduate work, I was 20. And uh, before leaving, I was doing a master's thesis in political theory. Uh, my topic was Lenin's conception of class consciousness and his conception of the relationship between the subject and the object in his uh, writing on epistemology. So it was a pretty, you know, rarefied topic, I would say. And uh, at the time when I was in, you know, an undergrad and doing my master's uh, research, uh, Canada was very, very strong in Marxism and in political theory. And when I left to go to France, uh, I went to a department in sociology of knowledge and Bourdieu was very prominent or, you know, th these are the years where Bourdieu produced distinction. So the landscape of the social sciences in France was changing very rapidly. And that was enormously exciting. But because I start and as I was an undergrad, I had friends who were older than me who said, uh, do your master's thesis quickly so we can all leave for France together, which I did, except that they didn't leave and I left because I had fellowships to do so. And as someone who had just finished my, my BA, I felt like, oh, that's really exciting. Go to live in Paris for four years. But uh, as I was finishing yeah, my... It's hard to feel uh, sorry for you for getting tricked <laughs> into living in Paris. Exactly. I felt like, oh, you can get fellowships to do a PhD. Why not? And I was very lucky. I got one from the French government and one from the Canadian government. So, uh, you know, I, I was studying under relatively good conditions, but mentoring was just non-existent and absolutely atrocious. So we basically had to figure out everything ourselves. And I also depended, of course, on friends who were a little bit more senior than me to, to help me, you know, learn things. But uh, as I was finishing my dissertation, I really was very tired and I did not, I kind of had a little bit of a burnout. So I went through a period where I really was wondering whether I wanted to continue in academia. And frankly, I know now that the only reason I continued was because I had this two-year fellowship from the Canadian government, which gave me, you know, a way to make a living. So, um, uh, and also... 
again, another adventure discovering, you know, American University. So yes, you're asking me if I was committed at the time when I took my, when I, yeah, I finished my PhD, not at all. It would not have taken much for me to decide to, to do something else. And uh, I remember very well, I had a younger sister who was working as a waitress in my father's uh, golf club and uh, i asked her do you think they would hire me so you know i was really actively looking for alternative and i could not think about a reasonable alternative so that's partly why i went to uh, as a postdoc and then i was you know interested and uh, got caught into it so i decided to continue after i had a chance to get over my my burnout if you will what do you think, uh, in retrospect, caused that burnout? Oh, I was working like a beast. I was first, you know, I finished my my high school at the age of 15, 16. I went to, then I did the, you know, a BA and a master's fairly intensely over four years. I mean, I was, uh, you know, I think I did not, going to college so young means I didn't have a good life balance, you know, and I, uh, studying in political theory, it was really quite intense. I had a very, very strong cohort. It was a lot of fun, but I think I did not grow up in a normal way in a sense of personal development. So, uh, you know, now that I'm 62 in retrospect, I thought, I think, yeah, what happened to me was not at all surprising. Yeah. So, okay. So you, you were sort of on this advanced track, uh, and that sort of allowed you to get through your PhD rather quickly and that sort of thing. Do you feel, do you feel like that was an advantage to you at the time? Uh, or was that something that in a sense, uh, held you back in important ways? Well, my graduate students now, I've advised a lot of graduate students. I tell them certainly that, you know, by the time they go on the market, they need to have articles. A lot of things have changed since. Uh, going very through very fast is not a good idea. In my case, I had a paper titled How to Become a Dominant French Philosopher, the case of Jacques Derrida which was accepted by American Journal of Sociology, which means, and that happened, I think, two years or a year after I came, two years after I came to the U.S. So I was very lucky in that that book, that uh, article, became a little bit like my my passport. The fact that I had a paper in AJS, you know, allowed me to... Uh, you know, I had made my, I had uh, my Vita, although I didn't write in English very well, you know. Uh, I had very d distinctive, important things on my CV pretty quickly. Um, and that's in part because of the exceptional uh, trajectory that I had, both working with Bourdieu, but also being able to understand that the French academic world and the American academic world were structured totally differently. And the article traced how uh, Derrida, Jacques Derrida, had become very important in French, in the French and philosophical context, and the American context of comparative literature totally differently. That, in fact, his work was known for totally different things in the two countries. And that was the argument of the paper, and it was also a network analysis. Um, you know, I think what this paper did was viewed as very innovative at the time. So, uh, you know, I benefited from that, I would say. 
but would I rec recommend people to do what I did? Probably not. Yeah, interesting. So when did, so what was the first, so that was, that was a sort of initial success that sort of got your foot in the door and you're just like, okay, I've got, I've got something here. I've got a space of ideas that I, and I can, I can, I can add something to it. Um, then what is the first sort of big project that you, that you try to tackle? Well, then I had, I decided my dissertation was on the very rapid growth of the social sciences and the decline of the humanities in Quebec between 1960 and 1980 at the time when the clergy was losing control on this society and the technocratic class was uh, asserting its control over the state bureaucracy. So the change within the hierarchy of discipline paralleled the change at the societal level. So with the dissertation that was on this topic and having decided that I was gonna stay in the US, I knew that there's no way that these people would hire me with a topic like this in the US. So I first started working on the book on Pierre Bourdieu that Anthony Giddens asked me to write at the time when he was just starting uh, the press that is known as Polity Press. Uh, but then I decided to, I wrote on, I worked on this book for maybe a year, but then I decided to drop it in part because Bourdieu was really intent on controlling how his work would be known in the U.S. And actually he asked me to write a book that would be like uh, the book that uh, Louis Quacon did titled Invitation to Sociology, which was a little bit like the authorized interpretation of, of Bourdieu to an American public. And I didn't want to do that for various reasons. So, and then I decided to write another book, which became my first book, which gave me Prince uh, tenure at Princeton University. It's a book titled Monuments and Manners, The Culture of the French and the American Upper Middle Class. And it was based on uh, interviews in Indianapolis, New York, Paris, and Clermont-Ferrand. And it used these interviews with professionals and managers with the upper middle class to critique uh, Bourdieu's work for being too centered on high culture and overlooking the importance of morality. So, and that was at the time when Bourdieu's work was just starting to be diffused in the U.S. I mean, people knew about his book on the sociology of education reproduction, but people didn't know about this distinction. And I was very fortunate in that it was one of the very few, if not the few, made the first um if not the first qualitative empirical analysis of a question that took Bourdieu as a point of departure to raise new, to, to ask new empirical questions about what is the culture of the upper middle class like in France and the US and how is it different and what's the place of materialism, morality and cultural sophistication in both contexts. So I would say that I enormously benefited from the fact that I knew Bourdieu's work extremely well, in part from having, um, you know, started a, a paper um, uh, uh, to write a book on it. So I knew it well enough to feel very comfortable criticizing it, even if I was a very young scholar. And, uh, you know, shortly after that, Bourdieu's work became very hot. So everyone wanted to you know, engage with it. And my book was really well positioned for that. So I was very lucky there as well. So, but as I said, that's the book that gave me tenure, but it was kind of risky because I started working it, working on it in 87, uh, just at the time I moved to Princeton. So I, I arrived at Princeton without a book based on my dissertation, unlike most American scholars. So, 
Yeah, and so it sounds like so I I'm not directly I haven't read directly that work of yours, but um, I am a huge fan of what I believe is your your subsequent book to that, which is the Dignity of Working Men, which touches on you know the the themes of morality and class and that sort of stuff. And this, I mean, uh, I I just have to say, it is a book that it it, it honestly is one of the most uh, influential books in my thinking that I uh, uh, ever ever read, and I think it was is in part because of sort of there's a similarity to what you're describing in terms of when it sounds like that sociologists in general started to appreciate the um, the role that morality plays in structuring the way people think about the society that they're a part of. Um, I had my own personal you know sort of discovery of that and. A huge portion of it was led by that work uh, of yours, which when I read it, I was like, oh, my God, this person is literally explaining all of the things. And it's just every every paragraph just hits you like a ton of bricks. So I, I want to say thank you for for having written that because it's such a wonderful work, even 20 years after. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. That's music to my ears. Yeah. Um. So I want to I want to get into that book uh, a little bit. So where where did the idea um I don't know if this is a fair characterization, but in your in your first uh, book that you were describing, um, maybe that conforms more to that notion of, um, even though it, it clearly was a successful book, um, maybe you, you sort of came into your own in the dignity of working men. Where did so where did what what did that transition sort of look like for you, and where did the uh, idea of that book come from? Uh, the 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 dignity of working man well because yeah. the previous book i think the previous book is the one that made my reputation okay. money morals and manners because it's how i got tenure you know it's when i became known as a as a sociologist uh, but that book was based only on interviews with college educated professionals and managers so to follow up with a second book uh, with, uh, which is based on interviews with uh, low-status white-collar workers and blue-collar workers, really made sense in the context of, um, you know, building a, a comparative sociology of, uh, of class, of class culture. And also the second book uh, also compared North African immigrants, the prime victims of racism in the French context, with um, uh, African American in the U.S., so the agenda was quite different. Uh, and so, where did that? So did that? Did that just sort of naturally come as an extension of, of what you were studying in that first book, uh, or was there a moment that you realized, oh, there's something big here that people haven't sort of appreciated the full scope of yet? No, I think it was totally an extension of the first book. And I remember as I was finishing the first book, I felt like, okay, that's a study of only one class. To understand the whole dynamic and boundaries, I need to do a book on the uh, workers as well. And as I started The Dignity of Working Man, I thought that the, pa- the structure would parallel far more that of Money, Morals, and Manners, with a focus on cultural sophistication, materialism and um, morality as dimensions of status, but culture fell by the wayside since it was really not central to the world of workers. And the two books, if you read them back to back, I mean, they really build on each other, you know? So, Interesting. Um, okay, well then let me let me venture a guess here. And is that, does that sort of continuity uh, exist throughout 
your whole body of work um, in terms of, you know, for example, after that, uh, one of the things you went on to study was how professors think, which is yet another sort of stratum of, uh, you know, sort of maybe, uh, you know, class distinction uh, that uh, sort of gives an even further perspective on that. And then uh, your more recent work on, you know, for example, getting respect and that sort of stuff, sort of tying a common thread throughout all of those different demographics and what they value and what their sort of goal is. Do you feel like that sort of continuity of how the ideas flow exists in your overall overall work? Absolutely. I mean, this um, how professors think is a sociology of evaluation. And if you will, my first two books were also sociology of evaluation, evaluation of people's worth, whereas the book on peer review is about evaluation of scholarship. But there's a lot of discussion of both morality and status in how professors think as well. So uh, the three books are enormously connected. And uh, actually, I was interviewed in a Swedish uh, sociology journal last year. And um, uh, in that interview, I very much stressed the way in which the books are connected. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, I'll... I'll uh... I'll definitely be sure to to share that in addition to, to what we're doing here. I find that really interesting that um, you were able to pick something when you were a young scholar that matured so well, in a sense, right? That you picked an idea, and like you described, you it was sort of this fortunate circumstance in which the scholar who you were sort of riffing from became uh, you know, sort of more appreciated in the years after you um, sort of did an extension of, of, of his work. And then, but not only that, um, the concepts that you deal with, particularly I, I think of, of class distinction, have become more and more important in the time uh, since uh, you, you first started dealing with them. And uh, you know, to this day of, of, of understanding what is happening in our society, uh, uh, you know, across the planet, um, specifically in voting patterns, um, with with the election of, um, you know, people like Donald Trump, Boris Johnson, uh, perhaps Bolsonaro, etc., driven largely by, um, you know, sort of cl- uh, motivations that are understandable through the lens of cl- uh, class. Um, so you, the point is, is that you picked a topic in, you know. Uh, uh, quite a, quite a while ago, and it has become bigger and bigger and bigger and more central to understanding the society that you live in today. And not every scholar has been able to to do that in 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 a in a uh, in in quite as impactful as a way. So, what do you think you were responding to early on when you were first starting to engage engage in these ideas? What do you think, sort of? Uh, accounts for that sense of, of taste and perspicacity and whatever you'd like to describe it as? Well, to in all fairness, I think um, the reception of my work and the fact that it became quite central it was largely due to the world around me being reshaped in such a way that my work would be central. In other words... You know, Bourdieu's work uh, from, I remember very well, the very first article of his that I read 
which was called Les Doxazov, which means, you know, the producers of Doxa, and it was a critique of survey analysis that was absolutely mind-bogglingly brilliant, you know. I mean, when I arrived in Paris in 78 as a graduate student, it was already viewed as a, a truly exceptional uh, sociologist, and the fact that his work became, you know, he's one of the the main sociologist of the last 50 years, and very few people would disagree with this. He's been extremely prolific, and uh, his work has had a huge, huge impact on uh, European sociology, on American sociology. So the fact that I studied with him at a young age and that his work gained so much traction, and also, extremely importantly, I have a very critical approach to his work. Many other people were more like riding on his coattails, so the fact that I offered a critique of his work early on was also very, very important. You know, there was plenty of people who were saying Bourdieu is brilliant or they would show that cultural capital exists in the U.S. too. You know, I mean, that work was important, but I think in some ways it was not as, um, uh, what would I say? Uh, it was opening, my work was really opening new vistas and in describing new directions in which to take scholarship, which came with some disadvantage because the Bourdieu networks were and remain extremely powerful. You know, like if you're Bourdieuian, you get invited to all the Bourdieu conference and it's a huge network. So in some ways, I all along, I did more my own, you know, I pursued the questions that were important to me. And I think the questions that animated my first two books uh, were questions that had always been central to me. You know, the question of what is a worthy life and how much uh, should people sacrifice their conception of what is morally good to building, you know, a reputation or to becoming uh, very central to one's field. You know, I remember... Uh, watching a film by, uh, I think it was a Herzog film, and it was very much about these kinds of dilemma, you know, dilemma. Uh, what is the title of this film? I'm totally blocking on it, but, uh, you know, these are, are existential issues that have always been very, very important to me. So, um, you know, and I think they are very important to many people. So... Yeah, absolutely. So one one question I have about that sort of as a, a, a young scholar is that so there's this sort of difficult trade off here, which is that you need to um, sort of study under your advisor enough to uh, sort of be able to understand what she does and be able to comment on it um, intelligently and to some extent extend it but then at some point you need to be able to depart from that and establish your own um, uh, unique contribution and perspective and I think that that is sort of a gap that lots of graduate students and postdocs have a difficult time crossing because it sort of flips the logic of how to um, be successful on its head and it sort of happens in this sort of untransparent way. So do you have any, um, you know, do you have anything that you tell your students about that? Well, I would say that also, you know, I was in graduate school in political theory in the 70s. Students were not professionalized, very little. 
there was zero, there was very, very little mentoring and guidance. Most of us did not think of ourselves as professionals. We thought of ourselves as intellectuals. So we were guided by a, you know, quest for trying to really understand things. And there was, in my opinion, far less the notion of students uh, telling their teachers, show me what oops do to jump so that I can get a job. The idea of getting a job was far less salient in part because the job market was much smaller than it is now. People did not need 15 papers before getting hired. So the rules of the game changed in a very, very important way. Not only, it also changed at the uh, at the cultural level, you know? So, uh, so it's very difficult to, I mean, if I think about what I'm doing with my graduate advisees now, it's for sure that I tell them you need articles before you go on the market, you know, but uh, the question of how you balance being deeply moved by questions that you really, really need to answer or, uh, you know, versus being attuned to what the job market requires of you, that last set of questions were not very salient in uh, 1983, you know. So that's a very big difference. Interesting. So one thing that I'm curious about is that, so um, through graduate school, you were mainly a French speaker. And then, of course, you came to the U.S. for um, your first academic position there. And um, sometime between, you know, then and now, you became a really, really good writer of English, be- far better than your average academic, I'd say, in my in my opinion. What what were the things that um, do you have any yeah Do you have any strategies for how you think about writing? I uh, went the the uh, in uh, high school. I went to a, a school that was run by nuns. And I had a very classical education. I learned um, uh, Latin for several years. So I think in terms of uh, understanding of uh, the composition of sentences, I think I was very well equipped to learn how to write in English to the extent that understanding composition, uh, you know, of, of uh, grammar is something that's transposable from one language to the other. And French is a very, very structured language, even more than English, I think. So uh, I was, you know, I mean, of course, learning English took, took, took me years. And I was very lucky that, like, my husband is American. He certainly, uh, although he himself went to a free school where there was very little emphasis on, on grammar, uh, you know, he certainly helped me to to learn to to write in English. So, um, and I read a lot. So the question of you know if you like uh, fiction, well, and you're doing interviews, and the drama of the people I studied in I interviewed in uh, the Dignity of Working Man was extremely poignant. I remember extremely clearly some of these interviews. You know, the human drama of having. These men who had left their family in North Africa and were, I remember one in particular, whom I interviewed in a housing, uh, the housing that was provided to uh, uh, immigrants. And he had the little room and, you know, extremely rudimentary existence. And him telling me that his job was to be on his knees all day on a roof made of asphalt 
And you imagine having that job uh, in the summer under the sun and the winter when it's freezing, you know. So not to, uh, you know, romanticize the uh, misery that, but, uh, you know, the drama of their life was just extremely clear to me. And also I grew up in Quebec in a context where French Canadians were very much discriminated. Well, not very much. I mean, it's, I was going to say discriminated against. It's, It's nothing compared to the... The racism of the U.S. or how North African immigrants were treated in France, but I had a certain, uh, you know, I think desire to communicate with to understand these these uh, respondents as human beings and um, you know to really connect with them as they explained to me what makes people equal. You know, what does someone who has this kind of existence think that makes us equal as human beings? And I wrote about this, how they point to uh, metaphors and evidence found in everyday life. Like we all have 10 fingers. We all spend nine months in our mother's womb. We're all like clouds floating in the sky, equally insignificant in the eyes of God. And I I really got very um, interested in making sense of their worldview in how they think about equality and how they draw boundaries. So this concern with boundaries, equality, what creates solidarity with people is really what was animating uh, my research and was truly important for me as a person. So that's my answer to you. I think I was pursuing questions that were really important to me. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One thing I want to go back to is that you mentioned that, um, you know, as people often say, good writing comes from good reading so who are the other who are the authors that you read when you were a younger scholar that most influenced the way you think uh the way you write the 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 sort of frameworks that you use well i think to the extent that i work with interviews a lot of this is the human condition you know so of course balzac you know the the writers who who uh provide us a full description of human life in all of its complexity you know the psychological aspect the uh, you know the human drama was very very central to I remember reading uh, as I was growing up uh, in terms of social science writing I mean as a uh, political theory student I was reading Lukash Georg Lukash which is not an easy author and of course, you know, what everyone read at the time, like you would take one year to take a seminar on Das Kapital, you know. So it was extremely rich historically and theoretically, uh, not always amazingly well written, though. And Bourdieu was extremely well known for his uh, convoluted uh, writing with paragraphs that, uh, you know, it's sentences that were one paragraph long. He was just the worst possible you know, with a lot of subclauses where he contradicts himself within a sentence. So that was not a model. But coming to the U.S., I had to literally learn to write in a totally different way because American is written, uh, English language, especially in the U.S., has very, very short sentences. And it's supposed to be very agentic and very clear. And, you know, you remove a lot of extra words that French social scientists just love, you know. So it was a major re-socialization to, to learn to write for American journals and American books. But I've always preferred to write books in part because they give you far more freedom in developing a complex sets of ideas that are 
interrelated. So a few years ago, I kind of stopped sending journals, papers to the main journals of my field because, you know, you cannot do everything. And uh, the, the other book that I wrote, co-authored with the six other authors, Getting Respect, is a huge project that lasted uh, 10 years and uh, which was based on over 400 interviews in the U.S., Brazil, and Israel. So you have to choose. You cannot do everything. So that's the path that I decided to, to follow. And, um, you know, I'm very happy with that book, although it has not been read as widely as I think it should, but uh, hopefully with time it will gain influence and it will gain a reputation. And then, um, so you're working on a new book right now, correct? Yes, yes. What is, uh, can you tell me a little bit about that? Well, the premise is in the current context, the, uh, the American dream is not delivering uh, as we are experiencing you know, extreme inequality. And uh, it has uh, had very negative uh, consequences for both the upper middle class, where there is a big, you know, mental health crisis, and for the working class and the poor with the spread of extreme poverty and, you know, the opioid epidemic among workers, the book by Case and Deaton, Death by Despair, makes that case. So the question then is, uh, what can we, what are the new repertoires of hope that are emerging? If we look at what's happening in, among millennials and Gen Zs, it's very much about inclusion, authenticity, uh, sustainability. So I, the book essentially uh, is based on, you know, a lot of what's most innovative in the book is I think that I'm uh, in the process of interviewing cultural producers across a wide range of fields, you know, religion, politics, social movements, social invest uh you know social investing uh, investment rather uh inclusive capitalism to try to understand what are the new repertoires of hope that are emerging and i started this project uh probably two years ago a year and a half ago but i'm doing a lot of interviews with these agents of change right now and i would say if anything you know the topic has become even more important now that we are facing this pandemic because Understanding where hope comes from is absolutely crucial right now. So that's what I'm doing, and I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, the book is based on these interviews with agents of change, but it's also based on uh, Gen Zs and millennials, well, mostly Gen Zs, who were uh, interviewed by my graduate students. I think it's a case where being interviewed by people of your generation is particularly crucial. So um, so what what have you been surprised to, to learn about um Gen Z and what they're what they're doing. Well, we know that uh, they are very committed to social change. They are very suspicious of institutions. So when they create change, they often uh, want to do it locally with people they know. They put a lot of emphasis, and that's one of the main theses of the book, on recognition. So this expression "I see you, I get you," you know, are are very much expressions of that generation. And, and it reveals the importance of recognition. So uh, the notion be a kind human is also about that. I mean, the, the, the left of the 70s certainly didn't talk much about the importance of kindness, but that I think is quite central. Not only to, I mean, it's also, I interviewed yesterday uh, Jill um, Soloway, who is the, the showrunner for the creator of uh, Transparent, 
And a lot of what she was talking about was that, you know, the importance of kindness as an alternative model to society facing, you know, capitalism that is basically very inhumane. So um, those are some of the themes that are, are coming up and uh, how... Uh, you know, the Sunrise Movement or the, uh, you know, the ex uh, Extinction Rebellion. I mean, a lot of the social movements, the Me Too movements, a lot of the movement or Black Lives Matter are all movements that appeal to question of recognition and that have been attractive to uh, millennials and Gen Zs because in part they provide alternative models of what social life could be that really speaks to them. So... Well, and like uh, if you compare that to the post-World War II generation that, you know, lived for, you know, achieving the American dream, be a poorly mobile, get the house, get the car, send the kids to college, make sure that the kids are able to reproduce the class position of the parents. Well, those generations that we're talking about are people who have not been able to reproduce the, the class position of their parents, in part because the conditions have changed drastically with the, the cost of, uh, you know, uh, higher education becoming impossible, they have big debts, so they will not find happiness in uh, the capacity to, to realize this stereotypical vision of success, and they find success elsewhere, in part in the, the capacity to create small communities of people where they feel validated. Yeah, so unfortunately I had some technical difficulties at the end of this interview, and it got cut short. But that is my conversation with Michelle Lamont. It was a joy to talk to her, as I, as I mentioned throughout. I'm a huge fan of her work, and even though she is a qualitative sociologist, she has really done a lot to influence me in my psychological and cognitive scientific work. So I hope you enjoyed hearing what she has to say and a little bit more about her path and her experiences and her ideas. And so you can look forward to her new book coming out, which we sort of tease there at the end. And uh, I hope you enjoyed. I will see you back here next week for more Cognitive Revolution. <laughs>